you hear me? Is this good? Okay, very good. Very good. Okay. So we're going to begin the message with a pop quiz. Okay? I want you to put all your books under your desk, okay, or your chair, right? Okay? Why don't you take out a piece of paper? I want you to get a number two pencil. Remember those? Right? And you, or, or a black pen, okay, or a black pen. You can't talk to your neighbor, right? And you can't look on their paper, and you have to keep your eyes on your own work, okay? So here we go. This is going to be a quiz, pop quiz, on humility. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions with the answers, and you can write down whichever you think is the correct response for you as you assess your humility, okay? Now, when someone, here's the situation, someone hurts you or hurts your feelings or they offend you, how do you respond? A, I anger easily and I plot my revenge. B, I remain calm, I resolve to speak to them, and to seek resolution. You can, your answer, don't yell it out loud, please, okay? Number two, the last time somebody wronged you, how long did it take for you to forgive? Weeks? Months? Years? Still pending. Still pending, okay. Now, what do you do after you sin against someone or against God? Adonai. Number one, pretend it never happened. Number two, deflect responsibility. It was the woman that made me do it. Remember that? Okay. You seek to explain yourself, providing the circumstances, and you, well, it's true that you did sin. It is understandable why you acted the way you did. Or four, ask for forgiveness. Here's a good one. When you're annoyed by other people, okay, you respond this way. Number one, A, I'm the standard by which all others are measured with respect to conduct and character. B, I enjoy the diversity of God's creation, their unique role, desires, abilities, and responsibilities. Only two more. Okay. When it comes to submitting to other people, number one, do you find it difficult to submit to the person and refuse to do things because it's beneath your dignity? Or two, do you accept God's will and recognize that he has placed people over you for your own benefit? And test number six, when you experience good fortune and something good happens and comes your way, A, do you boast about it? Or two, do you acknowledge that every good gift comes from the hand of God and that you are grateful? So how did you do? Well, we'll see in a minute. If you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to be talking about humility. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 11. I don't think I need this. Is that right? 
1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 11, and a little bit about the book of Peter and, and his writings. Uh, Peter was somebody who knew something about humility, because you remember that when Peter was walking with Yeshua, the Messiah, and the Messiah is talking about the future and what's going to happen, and he says that he is going to be betrayed, that he's going to be turned over to the Romans, that he's going to be crucified, and he's going to be abandoned. It was Peter stood up and said what? I'll never abandon you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And sure enough, what happened? Three times, three times he was confronted and denied the Lord. Later, after the Lord was the Messiah was resurrected and he met Peter, he restored him. And do you remember what he asked him? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And then he restored him and gave him the opportunity to move forward in leadership because I believe that Peter experienced humility, having gone through that brokenness and abandoning Yeshua, the Messiah, and now being restored. I think that he was humbled by the experience, and it's humbling and humility that prepares people for the service of God. Let's go to 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, I urge the congregation leaders among you, as a fellow leader and witness to the Messiah's sufferings, as well as a sharer in the glory to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is in your care, exercising oversight, not out of constraint, but willingly as God wants, and not out of a desire for dishonest gain, but with enthusiasm, and not as machers, domineering over those in your care, but as people who become examples to the flock. Then when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive glory as your unfading crown. Likewise, you who are less experienced, submit to your leaders and further, all of you, the entire group, the congregation, should clothe yourselves in humility towards one another because God opposes the arrogant but gives humble, but to the humble he gives grace. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that, so that at the right time he may lift you up. Throw all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Stay sober, stay alert. Your enemy, the adversary, stalks about, roaring like a lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand against him, firm in your trust, knowing that your brothers throughout the world are going through the same kinds of suffering. You will have to suffer only a little while. After that, God, who is in full grace, the one who called you to his eternal glory in union with the Messiah will himself restore, establish, and strengthen you and make you firm. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So as we discussed earlier, Peter was eminently qualified to speak about humility, having gone through the experience that he did. As, uh, as we stated earlier, that... Uh, 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 Peter said, uh, even if I must die with you, I will never disown you. And all the Talmudim said the same thing. And of course, we know the story that he did. Peter's pride in his own cleverness and strength frequently got in the way of the Messiah's purposes. Messiah was seeking a servant leader to guide believers after he ascended to heaven. 
This former fisherman uh, presented himself on the one hand at times with humility, at the other times as a know-it-all, as somebody who had an inside track on what Yeshua was going to do and what was important. But the Lord saw through Peter's arrogance and he saw his potential. He saw that in Peter's humiliation, one day he would become the leader that Adonai would want him to be. Yeshua continued to chip away at Peter's pride all the time that he was with him. And eventually Peter became the man that was qualified to serve and to take the Lord's people on to uh, greater things and develop congregations and raise up leaders and so on. He became a servant leader. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning as we took that quiz, even though it was sort of tongue in cheek, right? We probably experienced some of those things uh, to a greater or lesser degree to some level. We uh, fail the humility test. And so what we get this morning is we understand that humility is a key to being successful in terms of our spiritual life with the Lord. And I think it's especially important in terms of Thanksgiving come up because with Thanksgiving coming up, in order to be thankful, you have to be grateful. In order to be grateful, you have to be humble and you have to appreciate what he has provided for us. And so what I'd like to do uh, is just basically talk on two points, discuss two points. And the first thing out of this text, First Peter, I'd like to discuss is humility that produces leaders with pure motives. Humility produces leaders with pure motives. You notice here it says that um, they are to shepherd the flock willingly, not out of desire for dishonest gain, but with enthusiasm, not as mockers domineering over those in your care, but as people who become examples to the flock. And of course, in uh, John chapter 13, verses 4 through 17, we don't need to turn there. The Messiah gave us the, the really uh, wonderful example of a servant leader when he was with the disciples and he got down on his hands and his knees, if you recall, and he washed the feet of the disciples. The creator of the universe comes to his creation and rather than choose to be exalted, he gets down and he does this almost demeaning feat of cleaning their feet where everybody walked the earth. And so we get an example of that of how we should be interacting uh, in our humility with one another, looking to serve, looking to take care of each other. I don't know if anybody ever had that foot washing experience in any kind. Yeah, it's, it's humbling, right? It's humbling for sure. It really is. He made himself a servant of everyone. He bent down and washed their feet, and in doing so, he introduced another kind of life, where greatness is measured by how much we serve others. Pride looks down on others and says, serve me. Humility gets down before others and says, how can I serve you? Humility is constantly and deliberately being on the lookout to serve. It is accepting the reality that I am, by the grace of God, his container, his expressor, and his manifester in the world, manifestation in the world. So it's interesting, as I've been involved in, in uh, leadership for many, many years now, since I came to faith in 1980, school in Chicago, and then working with chosen people ministries in different venues and so on, uh, I've had the opportunity to do leadership, 
very, very well and very, very poorly. I've had the opportunity to work with leaders who've done things very, very well and very, very poorly. And I, I see that sometimes with leaders, there are leaders who ask two kinds of questions. There's the leader who says, what can you do for me? Or what can you do for my ministry? Then there are those leaders who say, what can I do for these people valued by God? And how can I assist them in reaching his purpose in their life? That kind of leader fulfills God's purpose and um, serves in ways that uh, build up people, encourage people, develop people, and bring them to a place where they realize their potential in the Messiah. Now, there are leaders who started out well, but did not finish well. And there's so many examples in the scripture, but uh, Solomon comes to mind as somebody who was, uh, uh, had a, a, just a preeminent um, uh, opportunity to serve Adonai and to serve Israel. And in 1 Kings 3, verses 7 through 13, here's Solomon's remarkable prayer. So now, Adonai, my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David, my father. But I am a mere child. I don't know how to lead. That's not a bad prayer, okay? really isn't. All right, teach me, because I'll tell you, education and a degree gives you a lot of knowledge, but it doesn't necessarily give you wisdom, and it doesn't necessarily make you wise, or uh, it doesn't make you humble. Moreover, your servant is among your people, whom you choose, a great people, so numerous that they cannot be counted. Therefore, give your servant an understanding heart. Isn't that a great prayer? An understanding heart. To administer justice to your people so that I can discern between good and bad, for who is equal to judging this great people of yours? What Shlomo had said in making this request pleased Adonai, and rightly so. And God said to him, because you have made this request, instead of asking for long life or riches for yourself or your enemy's death, but rather ask for yourself understanding to discern justice, I am doing what you requested. I am giving you a wise and understanding heart so that there has never been anyone like you nor will there ever again be anyone like you. Isn't that amazing? What a promise, okay? You imagine getting a job like that, okay? Be an incredible opportunity. I'm also giving you what you didn't ask for, riches and honor greater than any other king throughout your life. What a fantastic, it was a blank check, basically. Okay, I'm going to give you wisdom, and then I'm going to give you riches. And so his reward was a vast kingdom. And then he wrote scriptures, right? We've got Proverbs. We've got all the things that he put in the scripture. He got wisdom and, and, and talked about humility. But in the end, in the end, sensuality and wealth was his downfall brought him down. He was uh, caught up over time, not so much in serving people, but in demonstrating, showing off his great, vast kingdom. He had horses, right? He had women. How many women? A lot. Yeah, right, exactly. Okay? And many of those women, when, when they came into his um, harem, so to speak, uh, they brought with them other gods. And it brought down his spiritual discernment. 
and he succumbed he, uh, to, to the uh, temptations that all too often tempt so many of us. The difference between Solomon and David, what, do you, what was that, do you know? Yes, definitely, definitely. Man of war, man of peace. But what about the spiritual aptitude? Yes, David could repent. He knew to repent. Remember Psalm 51? He knew that when he was caught out cold, he didn't provide the circumstances and the explanation. Do you remember what he said when Nathan confronted him? I have sinned. Just that simple. I have sinned. And so he responded to God, and because of that, he uh, was still blessed by God. We don't have a record, per se, of Solomon, where he ended up ultimately. Uh, it's unfortunate. But it's a good example of uh, a person that becomes tempted and corrupted by wealth and by status and the things that often come with the blessing of God. It's amazing, isn't it, when we see so many of these people that start out in these ministries and these humble congregations that grow and they grow and they grow and they get so big and they become very, very successful. And then the board, which once was an accountability circle, becomes a group of yes people that we have to sustain the success and it just goes on and on and on. And ultimately, all too often, we hear about their failures. And it, and it rocks the faith of many, many people. So we have to be careful, and we have to be aware. And we have to be sure that when we place ourselves under leaders, that we understand what they're all about, what their vision, and what their values are. You know, one of the things I did um, when I hit my congregation in Woodland Hills is when people came in, and they were excited, and they were interested, and the Jewish aspect of things, and they wanted to come on board, I always made them wait six months, right? I always had to wait six months to see what our values were, to see how we conducted ourselves, so that they could look at us and we could look at them. Because all too often, you know, joining a congregation is like people get excited when they meet somebody, and they get married within weeks. You ever hear about those? Okay. Yeah, I, I, uh, the Oxygen Channel, I just uh, uh, got uh, YouTube TV streaming, right? And they have a series called Killer Couples. Yeah, Killer Couples, and all too often, it's these people that get married too soon, right? And they find out that what was presented was not what they were looking for, and they find some ways out, okay? And so we see leadership here is uh, called, we're called to be humble, we're called to serve, we're called to be sensitive, to look for the needs of others as leaders. And we need to be diligent about placing ourselves under uh, leaders um, who will serve us. But secondly, it's not just about leaders. Humility brings strength to the community through God's grace. And Peter says this, likewise, you who are less experienced, submit to leaders. Further, all of you should clothe yourselves in humility towards one another because God opposes the arrogant, but to the humble, he gives grace. Did you ever stop and, take and do a study on grace? Grace is like a diamond with all these different facets. That, that we have been bestowed with. For example, we have saving 
grace. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God in Ephesians. Then we have sanctifying grace. That's another facet of the diamond. There is power in God's grace, and immediately after we are saved, it goes to work to purify us or to sanctify us. We play a part through obedience and humility, but ultimately we count on his sanctifying grace. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion, right? Philippians 1.6. Then we have provisional grace. Another aspect of the diamond. Through his provisional grace, God provides for our needs. James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father on the heavenly, heavenly lights. When you get a better job or an unexpected gift, count it as God's grace towards you. You know, he's provided so much for us, right? He knew us when we were in the womb, right? Knitted together. We grew up, became believers. He gave us spiritual gifts that were designated before we were born, right? Okay. And there's even a section, I think it's in Chronicles somewhere, that talks about those who were artists, that their ability to create and to design was a gift from Adonai. So it's not just spiritual gifts, but even the abilities and skills that we have. There is miraculous grace. Look at what was happening in the early uh, congregations. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among his people. And through his grace, God still does miraculous things every day. He doesn't have to do this, but he does it because he's full of grace. Then we have serving grace. Every believer is freely given spiritual gifts to serve. 1 Peter 4.10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. Then we have sustaining grace. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, 2 Corinthians 12.9. And the Bible says, let us draw near with confidence the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace in time or of, of need. And help. So we have provisional grace, miraculous grace, serving grace, sustaining grace. There's all these resources that he has given us, but we can't partake of it or we can't utilize it unless we have humility. Unless we have humility. To be sure, I'm not a physician, okay? Went to the doctor, do the blood pressure, too high. So he gives me a medicine. And he explains it to me, and I hope I got it right, okay? But he said, this particular medicine, the way this works is that opens up your arteries so that the blood flows through more easily and reduces your blood pressure. I think, I hope I got the explanation right. And that's sort of a picture of grace, that, that, that when we're humble, it opens up the opportunities and the conduits so that we can experience all the dimensions, all the different aspects of this diamond, that is called grace. And it can be part of what we do here as a community. It affects our communication, it affects our relationships, it affects how we handle conflicts, it affects so much of our congregation. Boy, don't you, we'd love to see that full grace flowing at those congregational meetings, wouldn't we? 
right? We just love to see all of that of, of deferring to others and their opinions and their concerns rather than taking a stand and insisting on what we want or what we need. Humility gives us depth of insight and understanding. When I, was, uh, when I spoke last time, I, uh, I talked about the fact that we have to be sure that we have spiritual bifocals on. And what I was saying is that, you know, bifocals, you can see the distance and you can see near. And sometimes I find leaders that are good at the long-term, right, vision, but they don't see what's going on right in front of them. And then I have people that, don't, that, that see what's going on here, but they don't have the vision. So we have to have both of those. We need those spiritual bifocals to see the vision, to see far, to see near, right? But humility is very interesting. It adds another dimension that I found. Humility adds to what I call our peripheral vision, right? When you're humble and you're observing and you're watching, you're seeing things that probably you didn't see when you were pride and you were fo and it was only all about you and, and what's going on with you and God and your leadership and your opportunities. Humility expands your range of vision. One of the things in my role of HR, what I like to do is, um, uh, are you familiar with the concept management by walking around, right? And basically what that means is I get out of my office, I go out on the floor and I walk around. And I'll look at somebody and I go, Dana, why don't you come to my office? And what do you think people think when HR approaches them and say, Dana, come to my office? Yeah, yeah, right, right. It means something bad is going to happen and I may be out of a job. So what I do is I try to break that down. And when I go out on the floor, I'm watching. So I'm watching people's expressions. I'm watching to see what's going on. And I'll call them in and I say, don't worry. Look, there's no problem. Just want to do a check-in. Just want to see how you're doing. And so they come in, sit down, and we talk. And when I go out on the floor, I'm watching for a lot of subtleties, a lot of things that are going on. And, and if I see something that, that somebody's looking down for the day, I'll go and I'll, I'll call them in and we'll have a discussion about it. So we need to have spiritual bifocals, but we have to be humble because humble humility expands the scope of our vision, gives us that peripheral vision so we see things that, that we might not otherwise see. Pride is like a blockage that restricts the grace of God in our midst causes a, if you will, a spiritual cardiac arrest for the community of believers, leading to conflict and competition. The tools of the adversary is pride. It's very interesting to me here in First Peter that after this discussion of humility, he immediately goes into a discussion about the adversary. There's a relationship there, right? That 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 the adversary works through pride to choke off the opportunities that we are given to serve and to love God and to love the community of believers. There is, um, missing it, let's see. Here we are. We've been talking about humility. We've been talking about, uh, we took this test and you can take that test home and go before the Lord and either rejoice or repent, whatever is appropriate, okay? 
Uh, we talked about Peter uh, in terms of leaders. Uh, he was qualified, having experienced uh, the, hum uh, the humbleness and the humility that was developed through his experience with Yeshua. We talked about the fact that leaders need to be sensitive to being humble so that they're not looking out for what can they can do in terms of their ministry and how they can be exalted, but how they can serve others and develop others to exalt the Messiah. We talked about the community of believers that humility allows the conduit of God's grace to be manifested in the group so that competition and conflict isn't characteristic of the group. I found a great article that has to do with our topic. And it was a, a man named, I think his name is John Morasco. And his article was an article on the three phases of life. The three phases of life. And there's some psychology in there. So I'll give you the three phases of life, okay? The first phase, the schlepping, okay? You got the schlepper phase of life. Then, he says, you got the uh, macher phase of life. And then thirdly, you got the mensch phase of life. This humility works through your life. And so this is what he says. This is a very, very interesting article. Um, there's a big difference between machers and menches. First, machers usually have a very hard edge to them. Menches are mellower, softer, and more patient. Machers have a sense of urgency. Menches have a sense of inevitability. The mensch believes that it will all come out in the wash. The macher is viewed as being smart or clever. The mensch is always viewed as being wise, right, Solomon? You go to the macher when you want a problem solved now. You go to the mensch when you're looking for a long-term solution. In some sense, the macher is a tactician par excellence, but the mensch is the strategist. I should point out that the mensch is not just a dispenser of advice, but a doer of deeds. The thing that sets the mensch apart is that he or she not only knows the right thing to do, but he or she acts on it, even at great personal cost. Unlike the macher, the mensch is not at all interested in getting the credit for the result. He or she is vitally interested in the result for its own sake and doesn't really care if anyone ever knows that he or she is a facilitator. The mensch provides a lot of lubrication for the organization. He's above the fray or she, committed to the organization and its goals, but without a personal agenda, unlike the macher who always has an agenda, right? What are they going to do for me? The macher is territorial, whereas the mensch is extraterritorial. The mensch will endeavor to be the peacemaker, a mediator, or someone who is creative and trying to find a solution where there appears to be none. Appearances notwithstanding, the mensch is a highly effective person. His or her strength comes from ability to work well with everyone and, respect, and, and the respect everyone has for him or her. Can you become a mensch without having been a macher? What do you think? Well, I'm going to leave you on that note because when we're reading through these two contrasts, what was 
the dividing line was humility. It was humility that made a mensch a mensch and allowed them to have the opportunities to serve people and to develop people and to create them into the vessels that would best serve Yeshua. So go home. Do your humility tests. Rejoice or repent, whatever is appropriate. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Shabbat Shalom.